So, okay, let's continue. So we're in Mark chapter, or point number one on the, on the outline. And it was uh, Mark 1, 1 through, 4, 1 through 4, what does the quote from Isaiah tell us? And the answer is, well, Isaiah 40 through 55 is about the restoration of Israel. And Mark's announcing that the restoration is happening in Jesus. It's, this, this is what's coming. Now, Jesus is going to go on to tell us, as we already kind of snuck a preview earlier, that it's actually about the kingdom of God. Let's go to number two now. And that is, uh, here's one of my favorite questions that, 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 I, that I love posing. And I've done this in seminaries around the world. And I rarely get a correct answer or get any answer at all. And that is this. Mark 1 says that, J, that John the Baptist was baptizing. JTB means John the Baptist. Was baptizing with the baptism of repentance. Why then was Jesus baptized? Right? And the, the, the problem is, he doesn't need to repent. Right? He's, there's no sin. So why is Jesus baptized? If we can unpack what that means, I think we're on, I think we're on a good place. So did you say something, Dan? I mean, basically fulfilling the scriptures. Uh, uh, um... I can't think of a scripture, a, a scripture, I'll be clear, oh. be clear, that requires him to be baptized, though. Right? right? Can you think of, oh, is, there, is there an Old Testament verse that indicates that the Messiah will be baptized? No. no. The most common answer I get, by the way, and I'll say it before you do, is as an example for us. But that's silly. He doesn't need to be baptized as an example for us. He can just say, hey, you guys got to get baptized, and that's all we need. What's that? He I don't think that would, I, I don't know if I would agree with that. I, I think that if Jesus says, get baptized, we're going to get baptized, even if he did or didn't. We, we, yeah, we know, but there was some unbelievers there. Oh, oh, yeah, well, that, that might be the case, but they're not going to, if they're not going to repent, they're probably not going to get baptized either, so uh, <laughs> probably not too much of a problem. All right, now let's, so uh, I give you a slew of verses, don't worry about all of them, of course, but Deuteronomy 30 is the key, and I mentioned already earlier how Deuteronomy 27 through 30 is the key the key text for us. So let's go to Deuteronomy 27, actually Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. I'll bring it up on the screen. So remember Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29, and 30 talk about the blessings and the curses. Right, I'm going to be your God. You'll be my people. I'm going to give you, give you these laws, and if you obey them, I'll bless you. And if you disobey them, I'm going to curse you. All right, and if you look at, you know, just without looking it on, on the computer there, verse 20, chapter 27, verse 15, Curses the man who does this. Verse 16, curses the one who does. Verse 17, curses he who moves. Chapter 27, verses 15 through 28, 26, it's all about curses. Chapter 28, the, my Bible has a little heading, the blessings at Mount Gerizim. These are the blessings if you obey. But then we keep on reading, and here's what we find out. And then it goes on to say, oh, by the way, and if you don't obey, the consequence is going to be exile. You're going to be sent out of the land. And chapter 29 says, and you're not going to obey. Sorry, sorry, you know, spoiler alert, I already know what's going to happen. You're not going to obey. So what's going to happen then at the end of 29 is, I'm going to send you off into a foreign land, and you're going to suffer at the hands of a foreign uh, power uh, for a period of time. Now let's pick it up in verse 30, or chapter 30, verse 1. So it will be that when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and note carefully, and you call them to mind. The Greek actually says, and you repent. 
Or, or, or you remember. Uh, that's not repent. Sorry, that's the next verse. Uh, you, you remember. You're reminded of everything I said to you. Uh, in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. Meaning, when you're in Babylon, suffering exile, and you remember what I said to you. Now verse 2. And you return or repent. You return to the Lord your God, and you obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I commanded you today. Uh, commands you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you're outcast or at the end of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he'll bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you back into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Now, we can keep going, but that's the key. If you're off in exile and then you remember that I said these things would happen and you repent, then I'm going to bring you back to the land and I'm not only going to bring you back, I'm going to circumcise your heart. So that you'll obey the, the great commands, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So the question is this. Why was Jesus baptized? And the answer is because he's repenting for Israel. He's, he's Israel personified. And we'll see this in the Gospels. Well, titles for Israel are applied to Jesus. And most notably Isaiah 42 and 49 that we'll look at. Uh, uh, maybe actually even in a few minutes. Uh, if not, in a, in a couple weeks. Jesus is embodying the, the people of God. He, he's the people of God embodied, right? One of the most common titles for the people of God is my beloved son. And that's for God so loved the world that he gave his beloved son, his, one, right, his only begotten. Jesus is embodied. He's repenting for the nation. And what that means is that because of his repentance that the restoration is now going to take place in and through Jesus. Okay. So, and I put down the notes, you know, all those references there, and we looked at Deuteronomy 30, verse 2, and, and actually I didn't make it all the way to verse 8. Leviticus 26, 40-45 are the key uh, as well. But note in the parentheses there at the end of that little line there, compare the prayers of repentance in Daniel 9, Ezra 9, and Nehemiah 9. If you're aware of what happens in Daniel 9, the chapter opens up with Daniel going, I was reading the book of Jeremiah, and I noticed that Jeremiah said we were going to be sent into exile for 70 years. And Daniel 9 begins by noting the date twice. It states it in two, I think the next verse 1 and verse 2. It says, in, in the first year of the reign, or whatever year it was in the reign of Darius, da, 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 da. it's like, he wants you to know what year it is. Because the 70 years of Jeremiah are up, or are going to be up soon. But the people haven't repented. And the punishment means you can only get restored if you repent. So, Daniel 9, Daniel repents. Oh, Lord God, you're righteous and holy, and we are not. Oh, Lord, right? and, and on, 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 and on. And then at the end of Daniel 9, the angel Gabriel comes and says, or is it Michael? Uh, one of the angels comes and says, hey, Daniel, you know, this is great. Since the day you, were, you prayed, you know, God heard your prayers, but sorry, the people's punishment is going to be increased 70 times 7. The 70 years of Jeremiah is going to be multiplied by, it's going to be 490 years, not 7, because the nation... So Daniel's repenting for the nation, but it didn't work 
Jesus is repenting for the nation and being baptized uh, as a baptism of repentance for the sake of the nation. The restoration is, is, is coming in through Jesus. All right, now, I won't go over letter A there. Now, forgiveness of sins is a way of saying return from exile. Uh, we'll look at that uh, more when we get to the Gospel of Mark, most likely. Uh, and I'll, exp- I'll, I'll unpack it then. I think it'll be too much if I try to unpack it tonight. To return from exile, point number one, though. To return from exile meant that her sins were no longer being punished, her being Israel. Her sins were no longer being punished. Chapter 40 through 55 in the book of Isaiah, the, the context is Israel returned from exile. The announcement is, return, is, it, is in terms of the forgiveness of sins. Remember chapter 40, verse 1? Comfort, oh comfort my people. Israel has received double for all her iniquities. The punishment of Israel's sins is fulfilled. And now to come back, the next step that's required is repentance. Now, this will be a huge, huge issue with Jesus. Because you see, there were folk walking around at the time of Jesus who thought, we ain't got no need to repent. I'm Abraham's offspring. Right? Most known by the Pharisees. You need to repent, you sinners and outcasts. Right? Remember uh, Luke 15. Why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Or, or, or the, the parable of the, of the tax collector and the, and, the, and, the, uh, um, and the Pharisee. Oh God, I thank you, I'm not like that guy. I'm righteous, he's not. So when Jesus comes along and says, Repent, the kingdom of God's at hand. In order to come into the kingdom of God, you must repent. And their answer is, I don't need to repent. And there's your clash. Now, there's going to be another ma- ma- major factor with Jesus also, by the way, and that is this. When that Roman centurion repents, what's Jesus going to do? He's going to welcome him in. And the Pharisees are like, no, 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 that ain't the way it works. He, he's not Jewish. He's not circumcised. He eats unclean food. He doesn't practice the Sabbath day. This ain't going to work. So Jesus is going to bring a clash because the fulfillment in, of, of the promise to Abraham is for the nations. Not just, it's for all who repent. We'll, we'll see this in um, Mark chapter 1. The enemy is not Rome. It's the devil. Mm-hmm. Who's deceiving the nations. Notice the devil's the deceiver. Mm-hmm. Remember the, the quote, unquote millennium passage in the book of Revelation. The, the, the devil is bound so that he could not deceive the nations any longer. He's deceiving them. So if we open our eyes and are, are enlightened or come into the light, guess what happens? We repent and we become sons and daughters of Abraham. And the Pharisees are like, no, I'm not sure about this. And then when we get to Acts and Paul, this is the problem. It's a cultural problem, right? And that is... Grandma told me I couldn't eat with these people, and now you're telling me to take communion with them and welcome them into my home. I, I, I can't do this. So major problems and, ma- and, and major things going on. Questions? All right, number three, Luke 16. I'm sorry, Luke 4. So there's, so, so there's not a specific passage that says Jesus uh, was, was, was acting out repentance in behalf of the Jewish people. But you read the, but you get the theology. Correct. Saying, and you and you read here that uh, uh, 
the, all the nations the Lord your God and you called them to mind yes they were calling to mind the idea and in their heart they were repenting correct that, yes the, 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 if the people repent of their sins entrance into the kingdom of God is based on repentance right right technically you could say you know entrance into the kingdom of God is by faithfulness to the covenant but they weren't faithful to the covenant and they had suffered the consequences of that to be restored, they simply need to repent. Now we'll look at Matthew's gospel uh, next time, of course, and see the, the, the statement was, you know, was there a prophecy that the Messiah had to be baptized for the people? No. But what I, what I want us to point out is that there's a story that's happening and Jesus is entering and he's living out that story. And we're going to see this in the first, especially the first five chapters of Matthew. Um, and we'll know blessings and curses, blessings and curses when we get to Matthew 5. Matthew 23 and, and Luke 6 when we do that uh, in a few weeks also. All right, Luke 4, 16 through 30. Luke 4, 16 through 30. Now, Luke is going to um, have three chapters. This is kind of the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke. Um, and so he kind of introduces Jesus' ministry with this Nazareth episode. Jesus goes into a synagogue and Luke says, as was his custom. What's interesting is this is the only time we, see, we find Jesus in a synagogue. But Luke says he did this all the time. So for Luke, this one episode is paradigmatic, is an exemplar of this is what Jesus did when he went in the synagogue. So that's probably the way we would read Luke. Right? He goes in the synagogue, and verse 17, the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus, and he opened the book, and he found the passage where it says, it's Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. <clears throat> he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And, and, and by the way, sitting down is the posture of a teacher. Okay. They sit. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? Okay. Now, before I go further, let me stop. First off, we have for Luke's version already an indication of what the kingdom of God looks like. And we'll, we'll spend some time in Matthew next week, uh, next time we meet uh, discussing this. The kingdom of God is what, where God's the king. God rules in and through Jesus as the king. The kingdom of God, Jesus is coming to proclaim the kingdom of God is here. I'm the king in your midst. There's no question in my mind that when Jesus is crucified, the gospel writers want us to see that as the coronation of Jesus. We've got the crown of thorns, the name above his head, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. They mocked him, hail the king of the Jews. They crucified him for treason because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. They, they, they put a purple garment on him. Now, everything about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the cross was the moment that Jesus was crowned the king. Now, you could also argue that the whole Gospel story is the coronation because Psalm 2 right, is the coronation psalm of the Old Testament. Uh, and that's the anointed one, right? And Jesus was anointed at his baptism. So we could also say his becoming the king kind of began at his baptism, if we wanted to. His whole ministry was his inauguration of the kingdom of God, and of, of his kingship. 
but he was certainly crowned king at the cross. The resurrection affirms, that's all it does, it affirms that he really is the king. And he's the king of the new creation. That's what the resurrection is. It's the first fruit of the new creation. And then the coming of the Spirit in the book of Acts, of course, continues that. But Jesus is telling us what the kingdom of God looks like. It's good news to the poor. Now, the word poor doesn't just necessarily mean only physically poor, though it often does in Luke. Remember in the Gospel of Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit. But in the Gospel of Luke, it's blessed are the poor. And woe to you who are rich. But the poor are those who recognize their need for repentance. Their need for dependence upon others. Okay. He's telling me to proclaim, release to the captives. This is exile language then, isn't it? This is, you've been enslaved by Babylon and now I'm sending you, right? Recovery of sight to the blind, right? Blind and, and darkness has to do with being deceived and deception. Open eyes and light, and seeing, truth, knowledge, revelation. Light and truth were often synonyms in the biblical world. And to set free those who are oppressed. Now, the Jews would have heard this as Jesus setting us free from Roman oppression. Jesus' answer is, I'm setting you free from demonic oppression. The oppression of Satan. Right? He had to bind the devil right, before he could uh, uh, loose those in the devil's home. Which, by the way, is really provocative, by the way, because the home he's speaking of was Israel. Mm-hmm. So he's saying, you, Israel, are, have been actually under the influence of the devil. That was after they said, we know that you're possessed by the devil, that's how you do it. It's like, actually, it's not the way it works. It's you that have been influenced by the devil, not me. Right. Now note, however, that the response is great, it's positive. They're flabbergasted. It's Joseph's kid. Who would have thunk that, that the Messiah would have grown up in our little village, this, this small village of 400 people or so in Nazareth up in the hills, and it, 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 we're known for nothing, but, but we have the This is great news. Because Jesus is setting us free, insert, from Roman oppression. They're speaking well of him, but what happens after this? What's about to happen? They're going to try to run him off the cliff. So between the time he says, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, I'm the Messiah, I'm here to set you free from oppression, they receive him greatly and love it, and they just go, I just can't believe it's Joseph's kid. Something happens because they turn on him. Yeah. And they try to run him off the cliff. And Jesus is the instigator. Were you going to say something, Ralph? No, go ahead. Okay, go, oh, here we go. Here we go. So look what Jesus, he, Jesus incites them. In other words, they are receiving Jesus and welcoming him, and, 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 and they're excited about this. And he says, no doubt you'll quote this proverb to me, verse 23. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard that you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophets welcome in this hometown. What are you talking about, Jesus? They love you. Two verses earlier, they were all speaking well of him. See, verse 22 and 24 don't seem to work together. But I say to you, verse 25, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, or was sent to none of them. But over to Zarephath, the land of Sidon, meaning Elijah was sent to Gentiles, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet. And none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. 
And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. They got up, drove him out of the city, and led him to the brow of the hill in which the city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff, but passing through the midst, he went on his way. All right. And if we have time, we'll look, at, we'll look at that passage later. What does Jesus do? He says, I'm coming to, to release the captives, and that includes the Gentiles. That they didn't like. And that they didn't like. Now, mind you, we look and go, well, gosh, how could you miss it, guys? Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says, Abraham, you'll bless all the nations will be blessed through your seed. Mm-hmm. Isaiah 42, 6, Isaiah 49, 6, you'll be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. What do you, how could you miss it? And the answer is simple. Because when you go from Abraham, not long after Abraham, they became slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Egypt, Egypt's the bad guy. Mm-hmm. They come out of Egypt and they have nothing but trouble but from the Canaanites and the Philistines and eventually the Assyrians come and conquer them. Then the Babylonians come and, con- come and conquer them. Then the Persians come in power. Right? Then the Medes come in power. No, the Medes come in power then the Persians. Then the Greeks come in power. Then the Romans. 2,000 years of oppression. They've come to look at them as the enemies, not as the people that we're supposed to re- redeem. God, these are the people who punish us. How could you reward them? How, how could you include them with us in this kingdom? Not going to work. So Jesus, right, and if we had time, by the way, what you might note, and if you have a chance later on, look it up. Um, he quotes Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2a. What he doesn't quote is 61, 2b. The second part of verse 2 says that it will be for the, uh, uh, you know what, I just, I brought it up. I might as well show it to you. Uh, here it is. Um, Isaiah 60, oops, 61, 1, it's that easy. All right, uh, look at verse 2. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God. He didn't quote that part. He stopped in the middle of verse 2 to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He doesn't quote the day of vengeance of our God. Who's God's vengeance on? Israel's enemies. So when Jesus quotes the verse, they think the whole passage, good news, proclaim release to the captives, freedom for those who are oppressed, that's us. You're going to punish Rome we're going to be in charge. This is going to be great. What? what? Elijah was sent to... Gent- Gentile? Elijah was sent to... No way. Get him out of here. Okay. Repentance is the essence of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is that anyone who repents can come in. The bad news of the gospel... Right? Remember, the gospel is good news. But you're going to note that in three years, it's going to seem to be really, really bad news. Because Matthew 5, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the poor in spirit, but blessed, 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 blessed. Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. What's going on? You've had three years to repent. And if you're not going to repent, the curses of the law, of the, of the new covenant, are now going to fall on you. So the gospel is good news, because all you have to do is repent. But it's bad news for the, fir- for the Pharisees who don't think they need to repent. The other part of the good news is that actually it includes the Gentiles, the, the, the tax collectors, the, the Jews who've worked with Rome, uh, the, 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 the woman caught in adultery, and the woman is a prostitute, and, and, and the poor, and the beggar, and the lame, and the blind. It's good news for all them, too. Roman centurion. The Roman, the Roman, yeah, right? And, and nope, by the way, when we get to the book of Acts, Peter has a vision of animals, and they're like, no, Lord, I, I, can't, I can't eat with them. I can't eat that stuff. I can't go to his house. 
The disciples are still having to grapple with this cultural conflict also. Questions, comments? How much, how much was it uh, of a hindrance was the cultural aspect? Well, I, I guess yeah. I shouldn't say. I was going to say yeah. how much of it was uh, just sin in, in the human heart and how much of it was uh, cultural. But sin is, is a factor in the culture thing sometimes. Well, that's a hard question. I, th I think that's a hard question to answer. The question, if you're listening on, on tape, is uh, how much of this was a cultural thing and how much was a sin of a heart? I think they're two are, are kind of work together, right? What, what, what wouldn't you say? That oftentimes what we do in our pride, which is sin, we use cultural reasons to justify that. Right? And we look through that lens and we don't see the other side. Because I'm listening to you. You've made a statement that... Uh it, when, when Jesus sat down, that was the posture, that was the way of that's teaching. That's right. And so when you said that, it kind of opened up some, what well, Jesus' mannerisms, his actions, yeah, yeah. was saying a lot of things yeah. uh, that they should have called being well read. A lot of things more than just the normal stuff. He is, uh, he's all over the Old Testament. <laughs> well, and... and and he's proclaiming. So it's so it, it's so easy for us, right, to read the Old Testament and see Jesus in it. But they couldn't see it because they were looking for a different kingship, different king. a, a different kind of kingdom, right? One that released us from Roman oppression, one in which we're kings, one in which we rule, one in which we dominate. And just like, no, 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 that's not the way my kingdom works. And so as we grapple with the kingdom in the next couple of weeks, well, the whole the whole uh, this whole course ultimately, it's this upside downness of the kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. Right? The, the, the kings of the Gentiles lord over those in authority, but not so among you. Jesus washes the disciples. It, it, it's this upside-downness of the kingdom. All right, so the word welcome there in the outline is just simply meant that, that it's welcome to all who repent. It, it's the good news, right? It, it's this welcoming. Now, Luke 6, 20-37, I'm not going to spend time uh, uh, going through it now because I know myself too well. I'm going I'm to get... Uh, we'll never finish. Uh, uh, but we'll look at Luke 6, uh, number 4, 20-37 later. But first thing to note is the woes and the blessings. Blessings and woes in Luke 6. Blessed are you who are poor, what are you who are rich? Blessed are you who hunger now, what are you who are well fed now? Right. Uh, blessed are you when all men sp uh, speak poorly of you, what are you when all men speak well of you? Blessings and woes, and there's four blessings and four woes. Right. So that's, that's obviously Deuteronomy. That's the law. That's, that's covenant language. The challenge then is for the New Testament people of God to be the people of God. In other words, the challenge is that Adam and Eve were created to be God's image bearers. And, and, and let me see, I'm going to bring it up just because I'm not going to assume that you're going to remember Deuteronomy 30. But I'm, I'm going to bring Deuteronomy 30 back up. So the, the uh, invitation or whatever that word I had on the outline, the, the, the summons was uh, to all who want to repent can come in. The challenge now is to be the people of God. Now, look at Deuteronomy 30 again, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. And there is the key. Paul's going to argue in Romans 2, circumcision is not circumcision of the flesh, it's circumcision of the heart. Matthew 5, Jesus comes along and says, you heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, you cannot even have hatred in your heart. You heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who lusts after a woman in his heart has committed adultery already. Okay. What Jesus is doing is he's not saying the Old Testament law was like, well, that was for its time and place. Now we're in the New Testament. He's not doing that. 
He's saying it used to be okay as long as you didn't murder anybody that you were okay. You could hate them, you could want to murder them, just don't do it, and you're okay. But now in my kingdom, I'm circumcising your heart. You can't even have hatred in your heart any longer. I'm changing you on the inside. And this is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 30. I'm gonna, when you repent and return to me and I restore you, I'm going to circumcise your hearts, Ezekiel 37. I'm going to take that heart of stone. I'm going to give you a new heart and transform you into my people. And now God's people are called to fulfill, to obey, to do exactly what God had called Israel to do. That'll be the next, that'll be the next element because we can't just leave it with Jesus there as him doing the kingdom of God. We're going to realize that for three years he's training the disciples on what the kingdom of God looks like and then equipping them to do it. Remember John 14? Greater works than these shall you do. Like, greater works? Jesus, you've done some pretty good stuff. We're going to do better? And then you read the book of Acts and you're like, yeah, I guess they are. The disciples are also living out the kingdom. We'll see a, a quote in Acts 13 that, that, will, that will have you thinking for a little bit, I think, for, for a few minutes. But we'll, we'll work it out. All right, here we go. That's the challenge. All right, now Mark 3, 13 through 19, Luke 6, 12 through 19. Jesus chooses the 12th. Uh, it's number. Uh, Ralph, do you have the out, uh, hand out? I don't have any more. Yeah, I'm looking at you. All right, so it's number 5, Mark 3, 13 through 19. That's why I said it so quickly. Luke 6, 12 through 19. Um, Jesus chooses the 12. Now, we're going to look at this, I hope. I hope. Uh, I only have like an hour and 15 minutes to do, to, do, to do the Gospel of Mark in two weeks. So here we go. Um, if we can look at it in the scope of the Gospel of Mark, what's happening is... Uh, actually, let me kind of give you a brief in, intro to it right now. In, in Mark's Gospel, Mark fronts the opposition with the, to the Pharisees to Jesus. It's all at the front of the Gospel. In chapter 2, and it increases. They mumble to themselves who this guy thinks he is forgiving sins. And Jesus says to them, knowing their thoughts. Right? What's easier to say, a man, take up your pallet and walk, or your sins are forgiven? Then they grumble to Jesus about the disciples. Then they grumble to the disciples about Jesus. And so now, and then they grumble, why are you guys doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath day, picking grains ahead? Uh, uh, heads of grain. <clears throat> and then Mark 3, that's all Mark 2. Four, four or five oppositions. Just increasing opposition to Jesus. Unstated, stated about the disciples, stated to the disciples about Jesus, stated to Jesus. Mark 3. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath day. And I believe it's verse 6. From that point forward, they sought to kill him. Hmm. That's Mark 3. In other words, the opposition to Jesus is fronted in the, in the Gospel of Mark. The next episode then, Jesus chooses his 12. How do we view the 12? What's he doing? Is Well, in Mark's gospel, he's saying, I gave you an opportunity to be Israel. I gave you an opportunity to be God's people, the leaders of God's people, as I've called you to be, and you have rejected me. Right, right, right before Mark 3, 13, he says, you have to get rid of your old wineskins. Because your old way of thinking of things, like the Romans are the bad guys, the kingdom's political in terms of a, a king that's going to rule from Jerusalem and punish the Romans. You've got to get rid of that and put on new wineskins. You can't sew an old patch on a new garment. It's a, a new patch on an old garment. It won't work. And then he chooses the 12. 
The twelve then become the new Israel. Right? This, this fulfillment, not, and by the way, don't use replacement language, that's, that's, not, that's, not, that's just not accurate at all. all right? um, it's this fulfillment. Jesus is Israel, and now he, he, he fulfills the twelve as the new people of Israel. Mark 7, 14-23 now. All foods are clean. Mark 7, 14 through 23, all foods are clean. All right, let me keep it brief. The Gentiles, are, so in the Old Testament, you have levels of cleanliness required as you get closer and closer and closer to the temple. The outside, the, outside the, the covenant people of Israel is, is unclean. The people of Israel have to be clean, and they have to have increasing levels of cleanliness the closer and closer and closer you get to the temple or to the tabernacle. Gentiles are considered unclean because they eat unclean food. They're unclean for other reasons also, but, the, I mean, but if you're a good moral person, you're still unclean because you eat unclean foods. Okay. So in Mark 7, when Jesus declares all foods clean, he's declaring the Gentiles are now clean. The Gentiles can now, I know it's, the, the means of segregating Jew and Gentile are gone. We're, we're getting rid of that barrier. Paul will say in Ephesians 2, it was the barrier, the dividing wall between Jew and Greek is now gone in Jesus. Note the next story in Mark 7 is a Syrophoenician woman who says, my daughter is sick. And Jesus says, sorry, you can't take food from the master's table and give it to the dogs. And she says, I know, but even the dogs eat some crumbs. Can I just have a crumb right now? And Jesus heals the little girl. You see this? Right, and if we have time, it would be great. It will be a lot of fun because Mark's really cool here. Mark 6, I probably will go over this one. Mark 6, this is Mark 7. Mark 6, Jesus feeds 5,000. Mark 8, Jesus feeds 4,000. Mark 7, Jesus declares all foods clean. Why does John, Mark tell us about Jesus feeding the multitudes twice? Even if he did it twice, we don't need to learn. I mean, okay, we know you can multiply bread and fish. We know. We know you can feed a whole lot of people from a kid's sack lunch. Why tell us twice? Right, and we'll look at this in the Gospel of Mark next time. But we'll note that the fulfillment... Of, or, or, or the declaration of all foods clean means that the Gentiles are now welcome into God's, God's community. The, the barrier that separated them as being defiled is, uh, has uh, gone away. All right, I'm going to skip number seven for now. I think that point's been made. All right, Luke 22. All right, this now will, will, will help us understand. We're still trying to build on the question from the beginning of the day, and that is, what does the kingdom look like? All right, in Mark 22, I'm sorry, Luke 22, What I love about this passage, by the way, is that right before uh, Luke 22, verse 24, is the Last Supper, where Jesus says, this is my body, and this is my blood. I'm dying for you, right? Uh, verse 22, uh, and Son of Man is going to be determined, but war to that man by whom he's betrayed. Look at the next verse. They began discussing themselves about which one of them it might be who, might, uh, who was going to do this. I'm going to be betrayed. It's going to be horrible. It's, not, it's, going, to be, it's going to be me. It's going to be you. They're talking about themselves. They're, they're, they're absorbed or obsessed with themselves, right? And then verse 24. 
And there arose a dispute among them as to who was the greatest. Seriously? I'm going to be crucified. This is my body broken for you. This is the blood new covenant poured out for you. You know, I'd still say I'm better than you, dude. I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I'm Peter. I'm the one. I walked in the water. I mean, I, what you what you said? Well, that little girl. Were, were you in that house when the little girl was raised from the dead? No. I'm, okay, John, you were. I, I know, but I'm still. I'm better than you because I. You know, right? They're debating about who's the greatest. And Jesus said to them, "The king of the Gentiles lord over them. Those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it's not this way with you." But the one who is to be the greatest among you shall become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. The nature of the kingdom is humility, and sacrifice, and service. Right? Obviously the best word we could use is love. Right? Love is seeking the interests of the other, right? Laying down one's life. You know, greater love does no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So they're still thinking of kingdom the way we kind of think of kingdom. Power, money, wealth, position, influence. And the disciples, and Jesus is saying, no, kingdom is this way. It's upside down. It's sacrifice. It's surrender. It's foot washing. It's love. The Gentiles lord over those in authority, but not so among you. The one who reclines at the table is greater, but it's the one who serves. That's what I came to you. And I, remember John's gospel as Jesus washed the disciples' feet before this episode. And we'll talk about the significance of the foot washing, I hope, when we do the gospel of John. Questions? I mean, are, we still, are we doing all right? Okay, great. Here we go. Discipleship. Uh, number nine. Discipleship means, we skipped over number seven, I believe it was. And we, um, I uh, went to number eight and then number nine now. Uh, number nine. Discipleship means taking up our crosses. Uh, I, I deliberated on giving you this assignment for your syllabus. So it's not on your syllabus, therefore not required for the class, but still highly, highly recommended. I was going to, re- to list four, five, six passages in the New Testament and say, you have an assignment to memorize one of these passages between now and the end of the semester, uh, end of the term. Biblical memorization is one of, the, one of the greatest things you can do. Meditating upon the word of God day and night. Right? I hid your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Um, find some nuggets as you do your reading and go, I'm just going to dwell on this one for a few days. I know I've got to read a lot more, but I've got to dwell on this one. Right? Revelation 7. Revelation 22. Right? Great passages. Right? Mark 8, 34-38 is one of those passages. So let's, let's go. Mark A. Yes. Reading often we get tempted in trying to do a study. Yeah. But you got to make that clear. You just talking about reading. You just reading. You're not trying to study at this time. No, you just reading in order to get through the chapters. You're talking about one time. For the assignment on the syllabus. Right. I want you to read for with 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 intent. I don't want you just to read to read. I want you to read and go, okay, what's happening here? Why is he framing the story this way? And that's part of what I hope to give you a little bit of context today so that you know, I'm going to go read Matthew and Letter of the Kingdom of God. I'm getting a better idea of what's going on with the kingdom, right? Um, when we do, and, and you might read Mark ahead of time. And then what I'm going to do is say, okay, hey, this is the way Mark's outline. This is the way he structures his book. Chapter 6, he feeds 5,000. Chapter 80, he feeds 4,000. In the middle is a Syrophoenician woman and all foods are clean. What? Uh, and, and, oh, I see what Mark's doing now. So you're going to, 
but it'll help if you've read that and have familiarity with the story. It, it'll help. It'll help you even more after we're done with our study of Mark if you go home and read it again. And you may not be able to because you have other assignments as well, right? But my hope is that, that we're reading with purpose and with intent. Um, to, and that's why I said read the whole text at one time so that you can see maybe how it, it relates to something else. But the best, absolute best thing you can do is meditate on the Word of God. It, it just is. The text becomes alive. It becomes Remember, it's the Word of God that's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Not my sermon. God's Word. My sermon might help you understand God's Word, but it's the Word of, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Um, and when you meditate upon it, you see things that you never saw before. No matter how many times you've read it. You just have, like, oh, the Lord just can, oh, oh, well, I've been memorizing that for like four months. I had no idea it was there. And it's just amazing how, how powerful and how, how, how rich it is. All right, Mark 8, 34. He summoned the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Uh, uh, whoever loses life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. The nature of the kingdom is cross-bearing. Right? How do you become a king in this kingdom? Die. Die. How did Jesus become the king on the cross? How do we become kings? Die. Uh, and uh, hopefully, my, if, if you're not aware, my area of specialization is the book of Revelation. So um, uh, uh, I, I plan that last, that last night that we'll be in James to Revelation. It'll be, it'll be Revelation. We're going to try to get James and Jude and John. And, uh, we'll, we'll have to look at Peter because Peter's like really, really great. Uh, but we'll do everything we can to make sure that last night we get three hours in the book of Revelation. All right, and, and, and what's Revelation about? It's about the kingdom of God comes through the loving, faithful, persevering, sacrificial witness of God's people. I, I, I do seminars. You can see them on YouTube. They're on my website as well. Um, and one of the things I do in, in some of the seminars, I, I'll teach for a couple hours, and then I'll say, okay, look, here we go. We're going to now look at the story of the book of Revelation, because people don't realize Revelation's a story. And I'll, and I'll say something, and I'll say, you know, Revelation's a story, and not only is it a story, it's a love story. And people look at me like, what This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. There's, there's no love in Revelation. It's wrath. It's locusts. It's, it's abyss. It's, 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 it's blood. It's, it, oh, it's earthquake. It's, it's a love. The biblical story is a love story, isn't it? Yes. From Genesis to Revelation. Revelation is the climax of the biblical story. It's a love story, folks. And, and what is it? It's a love story of saying, I lay down my life for you. And you lay down your life, right? And if we take up our cross and follow him, we will save our life. So this is the essence uh, of the kingdom of God. It's a, it's a kingdom that comes through sacrifice and through death. I keep going the wrong way. Um, right, so that's uh, chapter, uh, that's number, point number nine. Point number ten. Uh, I'm going to save this one for our study of the Gospel of John. Chapter nine, it's resurrection and new creation. Resurrection and, and new creation. So the ultimate... As the, for our sakes tonight is well, what's the nature of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is the new creation okay. the key I'll, I'll say it this way for right now though this is, this is key 
the key element of the kingdom of God is God's presence amongst us. Okay. Now, when we think of kingdom of God, here's what I really want to impress upon us. When we think about the kingdom of God, we think of something future. And don't do that. Okay. That's going back to the conversation we had at the break. That's mm -hmm. also infiltrated a lot of Christian theology. Mm -hmm. Is this kingdom future stuff. In fact, a lot of uh, last couple hundred years, we had this notion that Jesus came the first time to be the suffering servant and the second time to be the righteous king. Mm -hmm. No, you can't separate the two, folks. If you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. No. How do we become kings? By dying. How did Jesus become the king? By that, you can't separate the cross and the kingship. Right? Jesus in John 18, Pilate says, So you are a king then. You're right, but my kingdom is not of this world. He didn't deny being a king. No, 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 Pilate, that's going to happen in 2,000 years. Right now, I'm just going to die on the cross. I'll come back. Then you'll be in trouble, but don't worry about it. It won't happen in your lifetime. No, no, no. I am a king. You're right in saying that I'm a king. But my kingdom is not of this world. So, so the presence of the kingdom. I, I wrote a couple books I brought if you're interested in looking at them, by the way. Um, and and I, I highly recommend, I, I just, uh, this shameless plug, but I wrote this book called Understanding the New Testament in the End Times. Um, it was actually initially published as Understanding Eschatology. Um, but no one knew what eschatology meant, so it's, it's like, oh well. So I read, eschatology means the study of the end times. Um, but, so I retitled it, Understanding the, the New Testament in the End Times. Now, the publisher messed up. The subtitle of the book is Why It Matters. And in the second edition, they left the subtitle off. I was like, no, I just wanted the title change, not the subtitle. So, but Why It Matters. My argument is that when you open Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the eschaton, the end, the kingdom, has begun. That we don't look at the end times as something solely future. Now, I have no problem. It's, it is future. I do believe in the literal return of Jesus and all that good stuff. That there's a futureness to the kingdom of God. But it begins in Mark 1, verse 1. What we call apocalyptic, eschatological. That's all beginning at the baptism of Jesus. The heavens opened up and the Spirit of God. That's apocalyptic language, folks. Okay. And the point of that is, is that you can't understand the New Testament unless you understand it in light of the Old Testament fulfilled, or being fulfilled, and in particular, what we call the end. Now, the end isn't over with. It's still continuing. And that's why the Why It Matters part is, is the, sub, the, the subtitle of the book. So I recommend this. And then I have another book that I brought here tonight. And that's, this is a book I wrote called Follow the Lamb. Uh, and it's a, the subtitle is A Guide to Reading, Understanding, and Applying the Book of Revelation. So what this book does um, is, you know how if you ever studied the book of Revelation, you might read like 200 pages on, here's all the keys to understanding the book of Revelation. By the time you get to page 50, you're confused, right? You're like, I have no idea what's going on, but I was lost on page 25. All right. What I do in this book here is every chapter gives you a one key. This is a key to understanding the book. Right? The first chapter is, it's about Jesus. And I, and I argue that and explain it, like five, six pages. And at the end of the chapter, there's uh, questions that now force you to go read the book of Revelation in light of the key that I just told you about. And so every chapter, you're in the book. And I'm, uh, in, the, in Revelation, I mean. And so you're learning, okay, then there's the next chapter. Okay, now about overcome or... Now about this, or now about the symbolism, or now about the, how John uses numbers. Now go read these passages and see how that unpacks. And so every chapter is simply adding on 
to your ability to understand the book of Revelation. So, uh, and it was meant to be a Bible study guide, a textbook for students or whatever, because there's questions in the, back of the, in the back of the book as well. So if you have interest in that uh, also. All right, but the point then is, resurrection of the new creation, uh, number 10 then, is that the new creation is the, the beginning of the kingdom of God, and it's God's presence amongst us. Is that present now or not? Now. Yes, and how? In the hearts of those who believe. By means of, in the hearts of those who believe, if you're listening on tape, by means of the presence of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit. Note that the kingdom of God has gone among us. So remember Jesus said, it's for your good that I go. John 14. I'm leaving. You're thinking, how could it be for our good that Jesus, God in flesh, is leaving us? And the answer is because I'll give you the Spirit and He'll be with you always. Right? Jesus was only with us sometimes. When He went off to pray, when He went off to go see somebody else, when he, right? God wasn't amongst us then. But when the Holy Spirit comes in our hearts, He's, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. The essence of the kingdom of God is God dwelling amongst, remember that's the Genesis 1, that's why I started in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. God dwelling with his people. I'll, do, I'll walk among you. I'll be your God. And you'll be my people. And that's present already in the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says, you are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 We're awaiting the rest. It's like, oh, I kind of looking forward to the new creation because this body, like, my back is sore. I've been standing for two hours lecturing and all, you know, right? A little tight right now. I, right. But the new creation has already begun at the same time because the essence of the new creation is the presence of God amongst us. All right, one more thought, and we'll take another break here, and then uh, we'll, we'll do that last section, and we'll finish up tonight. Uh, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. All right, let me see if I swipe this way. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now, we'll put this in the context of the Gospel of Matthew later on. Um, but the eleven, verse sixteen. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain, and mountains are really important in the biblical text, which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. Remember that the Spirit hasn't come, so they still don't understand yet. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, "All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father." and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3 is a thesis statement in the Bible, then Matthew 28, 16-20 is the climactic moment. It's the fulfillment. Um, it's it's the, the, the final paragraph. Right? Because Matthew, Genesis 12 is, I'm going to bless all nations through your seed. Matthew 28 now is, go and make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What's interesting to note then is, if the covenant promise to Abraham was, I'm going to bless all nations through your seed, Note, Jesus didn't finish the job. 
Every once, I'll, every once I'll, say, I'll say that in a very provocative way. I'll say, I'm going to make a very provocative statement here, and, and hear me out. It's not heresy. Let me finish. And the, and the statement is, Jesus didn't finish the job. And everyone looks at me like, oh, that's like, that's blasphemy. You can't say that in a church, let alone in a classroom that's associated with a church. This, this is not good. Right. Now, the reason why it sounds bad is because we define the, the job as dying for our sins and rising again. Right, remember earlier, the gospel is death, resurrection, and, and, and uh, uh, death, resurrection, and uh, maybe it's ascension, or, or, or death and resurrection. And I said, no, you got to add life also, and then you got to add the coming of the Holy Spirit also. But if the if the job was dying for our sins, then obviously he finished the job. No, he did. He did. He, he atoned for our sins and he defeated death, and he's the first fruit of the new creation. But if the job is making Yahweh known to the nations Jesus didn't finish it. And if Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3 is a thesis statement, the job is making the gospel known to the nations and Jesus didn't do it. And we're going to see something in the Gospel of John very provocatively about that also. Or would you say he told us greater works we'll have to go do it, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, he tells us, you go do it. Jesus basically, not, not absolutely, of course, he basically restricted his ministry to the Jews, to Israel. He stepped a couple times, you know, the Syrophoenician woman, look, you know, I, I can't give the food to the dogs. I just want the crumbs. Meaning, it's not, your, it's, it's not my time to go to the Gentiles yet. And he, he did a couple times. And the Gospel of John actually will make this really clear. Okay? When the Gentiles come, then he says, okay, guess what, it's time for me to die. Because you have to go to the nations. That's why the why it matters part is so significant. The gospel, the, the end times, the eschaton, the, 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 the promise, the fulfillment, the covenant, is to bless all the nations. Jesus has, has inaugurated that kingdom in his life, death, and resurrection. And in his ascension. He has sent the Spirit to dwell amongst us as the present fulfillment of that kingdom. And in doing so, he has empowered us, because he circumcised our hearts, to obey the law, right? With, obviously, not perfectly. We're, we're working on that, though. And to be a light in the nations, and thereby make the Father known. And that's the mission of the, of, of the gospel, of the biblical story, is for God to be made known. Then, we, if we were looking, do, do we make the Father known, or do we make ourselves known? That's the problem, right? Uh, the, the statement was, if you listen on, on the tape, uh, do we make our, uh, the Father known, or do we make ourselves known? Yeah. Th that's right. Uh, and, and there's all kinds of things to be said about this in terms of the unity of the church and the integrity of the church and the humility of the church, etc. But there's our mission. There's our task. Make God known. Very well. Any questions or comments here? That's the Great Commission. All right. We're going to continue to unpack that question. What does the kingdom look like? I don't know that we have a perfect definition of it yet. We have, I think we have the framework, hopefully. I'll keep repeating it, but let's stop and take a quick break. We'll probably finish a little earlier tonight. Uh, but let's do a little bit more in terms of setting ourselves the background so that we can be prepared to get into the Gospel of Matthew next time.